0: a fever, and the only prescription is more cowbells. Welcome back to the Nursing Crash Cart. My name is Cameron. This was a longer hiatus than I intended from the last episode to this one, so I've been fighting off some wonderful pharyngitis, and any recording I would have made during that time would have sounded like a a raspy peripubescent boy, so today you just get raspy me instead of the peripubescent part. While it could have been plenty humorous in your own right, or in its own right rather, I thought it was kind of best to just save your ears. Today's episode is going to be about sepsis. Kind of the subtitle for today is I've Got a Fever and the Only Prescription is Early Gold Directed Therapy. What, would you think I was going to say cowbell or something? Sepsis is one of the big concerns throughout the entire hospital. We've kind of spearheaded the charge in the emergency department uh, for initial therapy for the majority of the septic patients that a hospital sees. Sepsis is such a big beast right now that many facilities... Actually, have sepsis teams that are called for the in-house sepsis concerns. Around me at least, I don't know of any of the hospitals that have sepsis teams that respond to the, the ED. In general the ED is a very self-sufficient nursing environment and it's rare that specialized teams respond to us. Uh, normally we're there to stabilize package and then get the patients either upstairs or to the specialized care like interventional radiology. So likely you are your own sepsis team. So let's take a step back and kind of define our playing field for today's episode. The five second version of what is sepsis is that it's an overwhelming immune response to an infection. But why is it such a big deal? Severe sepsis, and we'll kind of look at some of the, uh, defining some of these terms in just a moment. Uh, It hits about three quarters of a million people in the U.S. each year and somewhere in the ballpark of 35 to 40% of these people die from sepsis. More people die with sepsis as a cause than prostate cancer, breast cancer, and AIDS combined. One of the last figures I saw that is that it's uh I think it's estimated we spend around 17 billion dollars a year annually in the US to treat sepsis. Combine this with an aging population, we have all these baby boomers that are getting to that point now where uh, they're getting a little bit older. We have the increase in antibiotic-resistant organisms. And the crazy percentage of people who have chronic diseases and illnesses like diabetes, sepsis, it's it's on the rise. Uh, It's become the job of the ED to be hyper vigilant of sepsis, and most emergency departments have sepsis protocols to aid in both early recognition and early therapies so to kind of get some more detail there's a continuum for sepsis kind of like a timeline it's not really I mean sure we'll we'll go with timeline but it's also more just like a um, within that continuum you've got the early not yet so bad part all the way to complete septic shock and there's this big wide area in between we tend to use a few terms across this expanse of sepsis, the first of which is SIRS, and this stands for Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome, S-I-R-S, SIRS. This is that overwhelming immune response to infection. There's a positive feedback loop that can get out of control in your body with cytokines, and the immune response that they then trigger Which then leads to this systemic, uh, the systemic rather inflammation. So we define someone as having SIRS when they meet criteria based on abnormal vital signs in labs. Specifically, we look at temperature, heart rate, respiratory rate, and their white blood cell count. For temperature, we look for fever or hypothermia, which is to say greater than 100.4 or less than 96.8 degrees Fahrenheit. For heart rate, while it's typical that you think of a, a normal heart rate being, uh, being between 60 to 100, you look for anything greater than 90 beats per minute. Respiratory rate's an easy one, anything to make. Greater than 20, it meets SERS criteria. For white blood cell count, we look at both the leukopenic and the leukocytosis versions. So a white blood cell count less than 4,000 or greater than 12,000, we call uh, meeting SERS. So when someone meets two or more of these abnormal values, we classify them as meeting SIRS criteria. Our sepsis protocol is it's pretty lenient. So with just two of these values met, it allows our nursing staff to place protocol orders for two peripheral IVs, two sets of blood cultures, a CBC, a comprehensive metabolic panel, a lactate, a urinalysis, urine culture. Uh, Previously, we also did a procalcitonin, But this has since been removed from our protocol as apparently it wasn't directing much therapy once the patient went to the floor so they've kind of just removed it. Uh, now, Now the protocol is also written in such a way that when these criteria are met not only are these these mentioned labs and procedures allowed to be ordered but they have to be ordered unless told not to by the physician. So this has two benefits. Uh, on the ones that were, you know, pretty damn obvious that they're, you know, they're, they're septic, but, you know, it allows us to get the ball rolling on establishing, uh, multiple access points for fluids and antibiotics. It gets blood cultures complete so that early antibiotics can be started. It gets labs needed to help determine the severity of the sepsis. Um, it just kind of, it kind of gets things moving towards that early goal directed therapy. On the iffy patients, the benefit is such that anyone meeting SERS criteria, and is not septic likely needs to be seen by a physician fairly quickly anyway, so having them evaluate uh, quickly to determine if we need to run the gamut of sepsis orders, it improves door-to-doc times on patients that likely need it anyway, and it gives nursing a way to document why protocol orders were not completed on someone who met surge criteria. Uh, Examples of these patients are... Uh, your asthma attacks, COPDs, or uh, CHF exacerbations, pulmonary embolism patients, remember that mnemonic breaths from the previous episode, uh, you know, all these folks are likely tachy- tachycardic and uh, tachycardic. These are the kind of the, the two vital sign findings that meet SERS criteria and triage where the patient is likely uh, not responding to a septic event. So having the physician there to say, you know, we don't need to draw blood cultures and start two IVs. Um, it gets, it gets that patient seen quickly by a physician, and it also gives us our way of, of documenting why we didn't, uh, go down that sepsis path. You have to be very, very wary and suspicious of patients that may not meet SERS criteria on arrival, but have a, a high probability of being septic. Uh, the really, really bad URI patients, especially ones who you know maybe are immunocompromised, know compromised like um, the, the the big geriatric populations or the infants, um, as well as uh, those that may be compromised by things like chemotherapy. So our cancer patients, you know, if a patient has a heart rate of 120, but the rest of their vitals look okay, uh, you know, we need to keep checking that CBC to make sure that when it comes back the white blood cell count, uh, you know, does it fall out of range? Because if it comes back at 16, you know, bam, now your patient meets SIRS criteria. You need the blood cultures, the lactate, the second line. So that's why on those those patients where we have a high suspicion, but they don't have two abnormal vitals, uh, we tend to draw the lactate as well as the first set of cultures with our first IV stick. Uh, This way, if the white blood cell count does come back high or low, we already set the patient up for a quick completion of the remaining labs to get that goal directed therapy going. Um, you know, the other big thing with this is that uh, when you're drawing the blood cultures, at least for us, we have a specific procedure that has to be done to make sure we are uh, limiting the, the chance of having contaminated blood cultures. So when we start that initial IV, we want to make sure we're following that protocol. So figure out whatever it is for your facility. Uh, but that gives us, you know, um, a, a good, nice, you know, aseptic, um, IV stick. And we also then get our first set of cultures, uh, you know, waiting to go. So if, if nothing comes back as having met SIRS criteria, there's no harm done in having drawn out the extra two tablespoons of blood needed for the blood cultures and the, uh, the lactate. But if they do meet SIRS criteria, you're already one more step ahead and kind of had the extra leg up in terms of getting the uh, kind of back on track uh, and getting them ready for fluids and, and uh, antibiotics. So <clears throat> once SIRS is met, and there's a determined source of infection, we now say this person is septic. This is the next step up in the continuum of sepsis. SIRS, then SIRS plus a source of infection equals sepsis. The more common sources you'll see in the ED are lungs, uh, urine, abdominal, and wounds. Uh, pneumonia, UTIs, your, your your rupture or perforation of organs, your diabetic foot wounds, and your IV drug use abscesses are the most common specific things you see as the source uh, from those, those various previous systems I mentioned. So kind of next in the continuum beyond sepsis is severe sepsis. So we we use this term when the systolic blood pressure hits less than 90 before fluids or a lactate comes back greater than 4. Uh, we use those as our indicators of severe sepsis. Now I say before fluids because once fluid resuscitation has begun, a persistent hypotensive state is where we then say someone has moved on to that far end of the sepsis continuum. We're now beyond severe sepsis and into septic shock. So quick recap, SIRS criteria is two or more of the abnormal vitals or labs, looking at temperature, heart rate, respiratory rate, and white blood cell count. Sepsis is SIRS with a source of infection. Severe sepsis is sepsis with a lactate greater than four or systolic blood pressure less than 90. And septic shock is severe sepsis where hypotension is not improved with flu resuscitation. So what is lactate and why are we measuring it? Lactate is the byproduct of anaerobic metabolism. So just because lactate is high, does that mean the person is in severe sepsis? Well, no. Someone with a crush injury, rhabdo, or other extreme, uh, extreme, sorry, <coughs> states of working out can have a high lactate. This is the, you know, the lactic acid buildup that everyone's familiar with when you're working out. It's a normal finding in these states, but it's still important to know when your patient has an elevated lactate. that's why we're pretty judicious when we are um, drawing and ordering lactates on these patients. I work in central Ohio and we have the Arnold classic every year so it's not uncommon to see some cases of rhabdomyolysis during that time of year and also with with CrossFit being the kind of current workout rage uh, rhabdo cases kind of seem to be on the rise. So in sepsis because of the the extreme systemic inflammation you have an increase in your capillary permeability. And this means that your capillary beds are going to be leaky, causing a fluid shift. The earliest response to this fluid shift is an increase in your heart rate. That's why the tachycardia is one of those signs that we use for SIRS. The reason why we don't use blood pressure is that hypotension is a late finding, which is why it's also associated with that, kind of that far end of the sepsis continuum. So we're in this this hyperinflammatory state. We're leaking our intravascular fluid, um, and as patients become more and more difficult to compensate on their own, the shunting of blood occurs to keep those vital organs functioning. If they're losing all the intravascular volume, they've got to keep perfusing the lungs, heart, brain. Those things have got to keep going. So when this is happening in the periphery, these tissues are being hypoperfused. As we mentioned in previous episodes, shock is that state of hypoperfusion. So the hypoperfusion then leads to anaerobic metabolism because those areas are not getting the oxygen they need, which then in turn leads to the increase in lactate. So now that we've talked about what's going on inside the body, it's likely pretty obvious what the treatments are. Aggressive gold-rected therapy leads to the best outcomes. We need to replace the fluids that are being lost from that second and third spacing. We need to maintain a good blood pressure. And very importantly, we need to help the body fight off the underlying infection. This is why knowing the source of infection is also important. And why collection of uh, blood, urine, sputum, wound cultures, whatever you need for this patient, why it's very time sensitive. For our protocol at our facility, two antibiotics have to be hanging Within one hour of meeting sepsis criteria, fluids must be started within 30 minutes of the first systolic blood pressure less than 90. Now, this is also why we have protocol orders for those blood cultures in the second IV. While you may get dinged if you don't have all your cultures drawn prior to antibiotics, uh, you know, on patients' records, it's, it's difficult to obtain that second set. Don't stress out over the second set of cultures, talk to your physicians. I'm sure they'll be on board with saying, you know, antibiotics do not need to be delayed because you can't get the cultures. The antibiotics and the fluids are more important than getting that second set of cultures. They can be drawn on the floor during trough times. It doesn't matter. The big thing is getting, um, you know, the antibiotics going. This isn't to say you ignore the blood cultures. You definitely want to get those if you can. But that's sort of best practices. Um, <clears throat> but don't let the, the, Gaining of a second set of blood cultures prevents you from getting the goal-directed therapy going. Uh, antibiotic ordering will definitely be at the, the kind of preference of the physician, but the vast majority of septic patients are going to get vancomycin and zocin. That's the um, uh, uh, piperacillin tazobactam if you're only used to seeing the generic names. Uh, based on source, a third antibiotic or replacement for zocin might be ordered as well. Or especially if the, the patient is allergic to uh, vanclerzocin as well. Uh, for example, if you've got uh, uroseptic patients, they may, um, they may add uh, Cipro or Ceftriaxone. Um, so you get that, you know, Cipro or Rocephan. Um If it's somebody who's like a you know, ruptured api or something, and they may be getting septic from that, they may order ancef, uh, or um, or if it's, the, uh, what we see a lot of, especially in the, especially in the, the, the geriatric population, um, are the pneumonias. And they may do, uh, tobramycin or levofloxacin in, the, in those pneumonia patients. If your protocol lists Y-site compatibilities for your typical, um, antibiotic medications that you use in sepsis, uh, make sure to use it. Uh, Getting these antibiotics going needs to be the big priority. Uh, Waiting for one to finish completely before starting a second or even a third antibiotic, it's not being aggressive, and these patients need aggressive therapy. This is also why that second IV comes in very handy and why it's very important. So the next, if the patient meets severe sepsis or shock criteria, a central line will frequently be initiated in the emergency department. Sometimes if things are moving super smoothly. We've got ICU resident, uh, residents who are just you know chomping at the bit and waiting to go And the patient's stable enough for the few minute transfer to the ICU uh, We'll get fluids and antibiotics going and then we'll get into the unit where then they can put in the line in a uh, less chaotic environment um, And so we can get back down to the ED So so why is this patient getting a central line? for a few hmm. reasons first antibiotic therapy is going to be ongoing and keeping them in peripheral lines that have to be changed out every few days it's not ideal especially in a patient who is going to be second and third spacing all this fluid we're giving them, they're going to puff up and getting additional IVs is going to become more and more difficult so having that central line is a good place to continue doing your antibiotic therapy so secondly in in shock states, we've got to support that body's ability to perfuse we have to give the body time to heal and have those antibiotics do their job. So we have to support them hemodynamically. Uh, we have to use drugs called vasopressors. Vasopressors are medications that increase blood pressure by increasing vascular resistance by constricting the blood the blood vessels. Sometimes people will just call them vasoconstricting medications instead of vasopressors. Uh, it's kind of just a good way of just remembering what these medications are doing. Uh, so we're definitely gonna have to do a podcast sooner rather than later about receptors and, and vasoactive medications and cardiac medications for, uh, anotropic effects. But for now, just, just think of it as that vasoconstriction squeezing a garden hose, you know, down to the size of a drinking straw. If we decrease the size of the pipes in the body, the fluid is gonna be there at a higher pressure. This is why fluids before vasopressors are important. If we squeeze that garden hose and there's not enough fluid in it, we can squeeze it all the way to to the point where we actually kink it off completely. So the kind of adage for vasopressors is that you have to fill the pipes before you can squeeze them. Uh, Vasopressors can be used in peripheral IVs in a pinch for short-term use, uh, but they have a high risk of causing extreme damage if the IV infiltrates. Uh, The extravasation caused by vasopressors Will lead to a lot of necrotic tissue in a very short period of time. So running these drugs through, uh, you know, the central line is the best choice if long-term use is required. Uh, the last two reasons for a central line are additional measurements that we can obtain. The first additional measurement is CVP or central venous pressure. Uh, CVP is kind of like a, a surrogate of preload, and in the, in the the clinical setting for sepsis, at least we try to use it to uh, tell us just how full those pipes are. Unfortunately, and and literature is is showing this over and over again, CVP is pretty horrible uh, when it comes to telling us what we really want to know, which isn't just fluid volume status, but fluid responsiveness. Uh, This is to say that if we give a patient more fluid, is it going to increase their cardiac output, or am I just overloading them and giving them pulmonary edema? More and more research is showing that using ultrasound of both the uh, the IVC, the inferior vena cava, and the lungs uh, are better predictors for fluid responsiveness than CVP. Unfortunately, I don't think many of the folks that make the protocols are at the point where they're willing to give up CVP use and monitoring just yet. Uh, the last reason for essential central line and the second addition, uh, additional measurement that we can obtain is the SVO2 reading. Or the mixed venous oxygen saturation. Since we're looking at blood as it's returning to the heart, when we draw labs from a central line, we can measure the oxygen saturation at that point. So we're looking for a number that's uh, we want to be greater than seventy percent. If it's less than seventy percent, there's concern that there's uh, that the blood is not carrying enough oxygen as it travels around the body. Less oxygen delivery means more anaerobic metabolism, which means more lactate production. So as SVO2 decreases in these patients, uh, you know they may need things like pack red blood cells, especially because we are diluting the crap out of their blood by tanking them with so much fluid, um, just to kind of help give them more oxygen-carrying capacity. Or they may need inotropic medications to kind of help the heart uh, more effectively pump the, bu- uh, the blood around the body. Uh, in nursing school, I remember hearing that levofed or norepinephrine, is like your your last line of vasopressors. But in sepsis, it's currently recommended um, that it's the best choice for first-line presser use. We don't keep levofed in our ED, uh, so we have to frequently get it from pharmacy if we're going to initiate it down in the ED, which can take some, um, take some time, so if we have no time to waste and we want to get the ball rolling, Uh, We'll frequently start with dopamine, which is another vasopressor. Uh, But dopamine is kind of funny in that it affects different receptor sites uh, based on its dosage. So you're going to get a a bit of a bonus episode today in that we're going to quickly talk about an easy way to remember three of the main receptor sites and what they do. We're going to mention alpha-1s, beta-1s, and beta-2s. Alpha starts with A, just like arteries, so alphas are your smooth muscle contraction receptors. So your your catecholamines that bind to alpha-1 sites, like, like norepinephrine, are going to cause vasoconstriction. Easy peasy. Alpha-1s, arteries, norepinephrine is an alpha-1, it's going to cause that vasoconstriction. So beta-1, you only have one heart, so beta-1 affects the heart. Agonists of beta-1s are going to increase the contractility, the conduction, and that automaticity that uh, that uh, that specialize in the heart tissue, um, whereas the uh, like kind of like, like drugs like Dubutamine are kind of they're great examples of beta ones. On the flip side, medications that everyone has definitely heard of, your beta blockers, are going to have that opposite effect. They're going to decrease that squeeze, decrease the excitability, and in general, make the heart uh, a weaker pump so that it has less oxygen demand. Uh, then lastly, we're talking about those beta twos. We have two lungs, so beta-2s affect the lungs. Our drugs like albuterol that have bronchodilation effects in uh, our asthmatic and COPD, uh, COPD population. So uh, back to dopamine. That's what we were talking about. Uh, dopamine is weight-based, and we dose it in micrograms. And like I said, it's kind of funny based on whatever uh, dose you're using. So at 0.5 to 2 micrograms per kilogram per minute... Dopamine causes vasodilation. This dose is frequently called uh, renal dosing, as the vasodilation increases renal blood flow as well as the urine output. Uh, this can also then cause hypotension, which is not what we want in our septic patient. The middle-of-the-road dosing is 2 to 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute, and for anyone who has taken ACLS, you'll recognize this as the dose range uh, suggested during the algorithm. In this range, dopamine stimulates beta-1, which as you recall, beta-1, we have one heart that affects our cardiac tissue. So then beyond that, from 10 to 20 micrograms per kilogram per minute, we have alpha-1 stimulation. Alpha-1 are arteries meaning vasoconstriction, which is then going to increase our blood pressure. This is all very important to know because in critical care, you sometimes have standing orders for titration. For example, you know, titrate to a systolic blood pressure greater than 100 and a mean arterial pressure greater than 65. So if all of a sudden your patient is completely hypertensive and you want to drop your dopamine down a little bit to the point where it's no longer having um, that much of an effect, you don't want to drop it too far. You could drop it down below 10 and suddenly you've got more of a beta 1 effect instead of an alpha 1 effect. Not only did you decrease that vasoconstriction, but you stopped it completely. If you titrate all the way to renal dosing, you can cause even more profound hypotension in these patients. Obviously, that's a bad thing, and it's kind of be my uh, it's going to be my, my my jumping off point for a bit of a rant I'm going to leave you with here with our, our sepsis uh, podcast. To quickly recap before we get into the rant, early gold directed therapy. You want to identify SIRS and sepsis early, very, very quickly We we do this in triage. Uh, but we count SIRS anytime those abnormal values in the first six hours of the patient being there. Um, if they have those abnormal uh, values, then boom, they meet SIRS criteria. Get your early goal-directed therapy out of the way quickly by getting your fluids and your antibiotics going. You want to have... Um, source appropriate antibiotics. So make sure, you know, whatever is the most effective in your neck of the woods. Uh, because sometimes around the country, you're going to have ones that are, you know, more susceptible uh, to specific antibiotics, you know, wherever you're located. Um, and then make sure, you know, if we're doing, uh, if we have to put in a central line on these patients, that we're supporting their blood pressure with vasopressors uh, where required, uh, preferably starting with norepinephrine, or leave Fed. And we're getting our CV, uh, CVP measurement. Um, I don't think I mentioned it before, but what we want to shoot for um, is, it depends on if your patient is intubated or not. If, if they're on a vent, you want like 10 to 15, otherwise like 8 to 10 or so if they're not on a vent. Uh, it's kind of what we're shooting for, for our CVP. And then last, the SVO2. Um, we want to get that number. <clears throat> to make sure that we still have enough perfusion that our, our oxygen um capacity in our blood is still being met so those are kind of our big things with sepsis and then of course getting them to their more appropriate location based on the ICU or ICU step down or whatever's going on with them so the rant specifically with dopamine it was kind of a roundabout way of saying that you need to know what these medications are and what they do in a critical care setting if you want to take exceptional care of your patients I don't want you to strive to be somebody who is only a task-oriented drone. You need to demand that you and those around you have a greater understanding of what's going on with your patients so you can critically think through what's happening with them, why you're doing what you're doing, what you can expect to have happen, and safely interpret the orders that are given. I've seen numerous memes on Facebook along the lines of Be kind to your nurse. They save you, or save your life from your doctor's mistakes. Does this happen? Yes. But I also know there's some nurses out there who couldn't tell you the first thing about half the medications they're giving beyond, oh, this one's for blood pressure. Nursing wants to be taken seriously in the healthcare setting. And the first thing that we, as nurses, can do to help with this is understand that we do not have the corner market on caring and to take proactive steps to have a greater understanding of physiology, pathophysiology, and pharmacology. If you're in school right now, pay attention to those classes. Don't sell these books back and try to get a bigger understanding of the miraculous things that our body can do. Learn more beyond will this be on the test. If you're thinking about emergency or critical care, don't let this dissuade you from continuing down that path. Just don't strive for mediocrity. Strive to be a legitimate advocate and educator by embracing the science and medicine beyond the fluff of nursing school. Does holding a hand and talking with your patients help them? Absolutely. And I am in no way saying that we should ignore the holistic approach to nursing. We just don't need to assume that it's only our niche or that it's our only niche. Learn all you can and try to be a spectacular nurse, not a uh, mediocre. End of the rant. So that's going to be kind of all for today's episode. I again want to thank Pretty Lights for the background music you heard in today's episode. If you enjoyed it and you want to check out more, head to prettylightsmusic.com. If you want to contact me, you can do so at edcrashcart at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter at edcrashcart. Check out the website and show notes for today's episode and all the past episodes at www.edcrashcart.com. You can also check out the podcast on iTunes. Just search for The Nursing Crash Cart and subscribe to the podcast. While you're there, don't forget to leave a review. I much appreciate that. So this is Cameron saying that with your eye on early goal rectal therapy for sepsis, you too can be spectacular.